Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Our texts this week in year C are from proper five, and to have these, we need to have a fairly early Easter, as this would be a late spring text at that point. Now, our Old Testament text for it is from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 to 24. The epistle, Paul's letter to Galatia, Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. And then the gospel from Luke 7, verses 11 to 17. If you're one of those that really enjoys math and numbers, that's kind of a fun set of readings because you've got the king's text, right, is going to be verses 17 to 24. And the gospel is 11 to 17, and Galatians encompasses both sets of numbers from 11 to 24. And the chapters even do that, as Galatians is chapter 1, Luke is 7, you put those together, Kings is 17. So, a bit of a fun oddity that happened with these texts, but not the point. We're going to dig into 1 Kings chapter 17. The point of these texts is the resurrection. We're going to see the first resurrection in all of Scripture, and then we're going to see Jesus raising the dead in the gospel. So we're going to begin with 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24, as a bit of a backstory here. We've had a stretch of the kings of Israel mentioned in the book, and then at the start of chapter 17, which is maybe somewhere in the 870s BC, God speaks to the prophet Elijah that there will be a drought, and the Lord takes Elijah to the brook Kareth on the east side of the Jordan River, and there he feeds Elijah by ravens until the brook runs dry. You might remember that Old Testament account. After this, he sends Elijah off to Zarephath. Zarephath is a town of the Sidonians, so Sidon, you might remember Tyre and Sidon, a couple of port cities off to the northwest of Jerusalem on the Mediterranean Sea. Zarephath is about seven miles south of Sidon. There, Elijah finds a widow gathering sticks, and when he speaks with her, learns that she is preparing a fire to cook a final meal, as she basically believes she and her son are going to die of this drought and starvation. And so, At that point, God promises this widow a jar of flour and a jar of oil that will not run out until the Lord sends rain upon the earth again. And she feeds Elijah. That's the text introduction. The text itself, one paragraph. So we begin. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. He said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to Yahweh, Yahweh, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow, with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times, and cried to Yahweh, O Yahweh, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And Yahweh listened 
to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. After this, again, so drought, severe in the land, Elijah goes to Zarephath and works the miracle with the jars. Sometime later, as Elijah is staying with this family, sojourning with them as a wanderer, the son becomes ill. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but first, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house. That word mistress, if you look at the Greek Septuagint, is the feminine form of the Greek word for Lord. So as we might think of the Middle Ages, lords and ladies, you could in that way translate this word, the lady of the house. It seems to indicate, that as time has progressed, she is still a widow, and that even though it's not the norm, perhaps, she is the head of her house. It's just her and her son. I guess I can't specifically preclude servants, but her poverty in the past would make that unlikely. What would make it a possibility is that she has been blessed by God with food that doesn't end during a time of drought. So maybe others have come to her for aid, depending on how much time has passed here. Returning to the son's illness, in verse 17, it became so severe, there was no breath left in him. We could maybe make medical arguments about things that we know today, but based on the text itself, as we keep reading, he's dead. Right, Verse 18, cause the death of my son. Elijah's prayer, let this child's life come into him again. He's dead. And while we don't know precisely how old he is, that word child does get used, and so would indicate we're not talking about a a grown man, in which case, I mean, he would be the master of the house caring for his widowed mother. It would be a better, a stronger family situation financially at that point, but that hasn't come. And could it be stronger financially? Because she's been blessed with this wonderful gift from God. She's able to provide everything her family needs. Notice her response. She makes a very strong accusation against Elijah the prophet. What have you against me, O man of God? Even if it was just that question, if that's all we had, you can read into it, can't you? Son got sick, son died. What have you against me, man of God? She believes the death of her son is connected to Elijah being there. Has she this quickly forgotten that she was, before Elijah arrived, preparing their final meal, thinking they would die? Elijah's presence has given her son more time to live, not less. 
On the flip side of that, though, there is something correct to this, and it shows up in Elijah's prayer as well, as he asks if God has brought calamity upon this woman. The Lord is the author of life, and the Lord does bring death because of sin. He brings judgment. As the Lord himself will say in Deuteronomy 32, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. It's a conversation around the problem of suffering. The Lord does bring suffering. And he does it in his own time, in his own ways, and for his own reasons. We don't always know why. In this case, we can read into this a little bit, right? The death of this child is going to open the way for a miracle. It's going to strengthen the faith of this family. And that is, by the way, what suffering from the Lord upon his people is meant for. I mean, you can see that in Romans 5, in the whole of the epistle of 1 Peter, and so forth. Suffering is something that is meant to strengthen our faith. Have you come to bring to remembrance my sin? Now that is a bit of a contrast from from Judaism, the Old Testament Jewish faith. The idea there being that the one who sins is the one who dies. So the Lord is not bringing this death upon the son because the mother sinned. He's bringing the death upon the son because the son sinned. But in fairness, in her grief, we see her wondering why. Why did my son die? Did you bring this? Is it on my sin? What's happened here? And so Elijah simply says, give me your son. This is an intriguing moment because there has never been in the course of Scripture up to this point a resurrection from the dead. What is Elijah doing? It's fascinating to think of his faith in this moment. He takes the child, small enough that he can carry him up some steps, to the upper room where he's staying, lays him on his own bed, and he prays to God. Why have you brought calamity? Have you brought calamity? Even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son. And the answer to that is yes, he has brought this disaster, this tragedy. But then Elijah stretches himself out three times upon the child. So a repeated pattern of prayer. We see that. We do that in the Kyrie as we worship. Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. It's a Trinitarian thing too, is it not? As we think about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This number three having that that importance. His prayer, perhaps threefold as well, 
O Yahweh my God, let this child's life come into him again. In the Hebrew text, the word life here is nephesh. In the Greek Septuagint, it is suke. Either of these words can be translated soul or life. The word breath is a possibility again, as well as we saw breath in verse 17. I'm dwelling on the word soul myself as I think about the translation because death is a separation of body and soul. And so as Elijah prays, he prays that this child's soul would be returned into him, that body and soul would be reunited and the child brought back to life. Notice in this, then, that body and soul are both the child. This child's life, this child's soul, as he holds, or I guess lays upon, this dead child, this dead boy, he doesn't refer to it as just a shell. This is the child, as is the soul. We are both, you and I. We are not a soul that is looking to escape a broken body. We are both the broken body and soul. The broken soul. It's all broken until Christ raises us from the dead on the last day. So Elijah prays. In verse 22, Yahweh listened to the voice of Elijah. The encouragement and reminder to us that the Lord does hear our prayers and he answers our prayers. Thanks be to God. And the life of the child came into him again life, soul, breath, and he revived. First resurrection in all of Scripture hasn't happened before. Elijah thought it a possibility, though. In his faith, he trusted the Lord, thought this could be done, and the Lord did it. And so Elijah brings this child down out of that upper chamber to his mother. See, your son lives. I don't know that we can quite imagine just how wonderful that moment was for mother and son. And as a pastor, I can only catch a glimpse of what it would have been like to be the prophet in that moment, to have stood there and seen the joy of the family reunited. The dead are raised. This is something unique to Christian faith. I know the Jews share the Old Testament, but we believe in a resurrection of all people. We hold to a resurrection of the dead, which we will see more of as we get to the Gospel account in a little bit. But for now, the woman's response, Now I know that you are a man of God. The word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. Only now? Only now, after the miracle he's already performed? It wasn't enough that he made you a promise from God himself that your food would not run out throughout the rest of this three-and-a-half-year drought? But a resurrection from the dead, that, that proved it. I'm not meaning to be intentionally too harsh on her. This is our 
sinful nature. We have faith and then we doubt, we struggle, we, we are challenged by things in life and we, we waver. I'm not going to say fall, right? She comes to him and calls him man of God back in verse 18. I'm not saying she left this faith that she had because the Lord has been providing. But that faith has now been strengthened. The Lord hears our prayers when we call out to him in our doubts. And he answers. He responds. He does strengthen faith through word and sacrament. And he does it regularly, even daily. Now, the word in his mouth is truth. The word of Yahweh in his mouth is truth. A recognition that prophets speak the word of God a recognition that God is truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are central to who God is and to how he works. Lastly, to note in this text, perhaps in the structure of the book of Kings as it was compiled by the Holy Spirit, inspired, perhaps we're meant to see a contrast between these two women. And I know we've only had one in the text today, but at the end of chapter 16, we met King Ahab of Israel and his wicked and evil wife, Queen Jezebel, arguably the most evil woman in scripture. She is from Sidon. This widow is from Sidon. So we have a Sidonian, so not Jew. These are people outside of God's people. We have a Sidonian who is wicked and seeks to destroy God's people and his prophet. And we have a Sidonian who is faithful and listens to God's prophet and even helps care for him. I think that contrast is something worth picking up on, uh, that there would be an intentionality there. As we move into our Galatians epistle from chapter 1, verses 11 to 24, we started this text, depending on where you are, if you had an early enough Easter to get proper for last week, we started this text last week with the beginning of the chapter, actually had verses 1 through 12, so there's a little overlap at the end of the text with what we had from before. It gives you a running start. I mean, What he says in verse 11 is going to be the point that he's making at the end of the paragraph by the time you get to 16. So we'll take that first paragraph, verses 11 through 17, to start. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia 
and returned again to Damascus. Contextually here, it's hard to say exactly what the timeline of this text is. Galatians is one of the first letters in the New Testament to be written down, uh, likely in the late 40s A.D. Paul is a convert to Christianity probably a few years in. So I would date Jesus' resurrection to the 27, 28, 29 range. And then we have some time in the early book of Acts that passes before Stephen is going to be killed. Saul, Paul, present for that. So early 30s maybe, possibly as late as the mid-30s for Paul's conversion. It's just not, not easy to pin it down. We do get a bit of a timeline, but not that specific uh, in the next paragraph. Note, though, he calls them brothers, even though in last week's text he spoke very harshly to them that he is astonished that they have so quickly deserted the gospel that was given to them. That makes it sound like they left the faith a little bit. They haven't quite, right? They are struggling. They have welcomed false teachings, false teachers, into the congregation. And so he's going to push back against that. And the way he's going to do it in this particular text is by showing that the word he brought them, the gospel he brought to them before when he planted the churches in their region on his first missionary journey, wasn't something he made up, wasn't something that he received from another man, but rather he received it as a divine revelation. The gospel he gave them is the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ gave him. This is Acts 9, the road to Damascus, as Paul has gotten permission of the Jewish authorities and leaders back in Jerusalem to go to this city of Damascus where he has heard that there are these members of the way, which is what we were called before we were called Christians. He's going there to, with letters of intent, to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and potentially execution. And there on that road, Jesus Christ shines upon him. blinds him even, but reveals himself, speaks to him. And perhaps uh, in a more full way than what's recorded in Acts chapter 9, or maybe this revelation of Jesus Christ is somehow simply made known to him. Like an instantaneous thing where suddenly Paul sees the fullness of the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. It's hard to say. But in two hours, roughly walking the road to Emmaus, Jesus was able to unpack the whole Old Testament and show Cleopas and the other disciple how it all pointed to him. So why not in a conversation with Paul? However it played out. Paul now begins to revisit his past. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. We've already mentioned that. 
in his intent. He thought he was being a faithful Jew. He thought he was being faithful to his God, that this is what God would have wanted, that these people were running around mocking him and seeking to lead his faithful ones away from their faith, right? And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that would be true. He would not be God, and these Christians would be false teachers. That's what Paul thought. He maybe connected himself back to the Levites in Exodus chapter 32, when you have the whole golden calf account, and Moses comes to the people looking for any who is willing to take up his sword on behalf of Yahweh and strike down those who have created the calf and have thus been a burden and disaster and blight upon God's people. And the Levites took up the sword and struck down 3,000 that day. Maybe Saul saw himself in that way. His zeal to be zealous is to be strongly passionate for something. I think it's worth noting his zeal here and, and maybe a, a characteristic of man that that zealousness stays. So before he's lighted upon, revealed to Jesus, by Jesus. He is full bore, zealous in his Jewish faith and to destroy the Christian church. After his conversion, that zealousness does not change. His level of passion does not change. Instead, it is turned. It is redirected. It is aimed in a new direction. He is just as zealous for the proclamation of Jesus as he was for snuffing it out before. The Lord uses, works through his people. He didn't take Paul's zeal away. He just gave it a better purpose. So before I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers, and and that's good. Or at least, that's the way God designed it to be. Unfortunately, the traditions of his fathers had rejected the Messiah that had been sent to them, that they were waiting for. I mean, you go to Exodus 12 and 13, Deuteronomy 6, all these kinds of places in the Old Testament, several Psalms, and they teach that this is what fathers do. They pass the traditions on to their kids. But, verse 15, when he who had set me apart before I was born, that's a reference to God, God already knowing what Paul would do in, in time to come, who called me by his grace. So God called Paul by his grace, that is, as a gift. This is Ephesians 2, as Paul would later write. I guess at this point he hasn't written that text yet. But he would. By his grace, by gift, God called me. God made me his And we note that he's done that for us as well. We have all been called by the grace of God. Thanks be to God. So by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Again, we can share in that same thing. This is what the season of Epiphany is about in the church calendar. That God revealed his plan of salvation to us. That he made known his son Jesus to us. Paul is delighting in that too, although his revelation was a little bit more particular 
as Jesus again appears to him on the road. But for what purpose? Paul says, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is his call. Paul will travel the world sharing Christ with one tribe after another, with one nation after another, planting churches all over the place. Thanks be to God for this zealous brother of ours, and he did such great things, the Lord working through him. Now, when he, going back to the start of the verse, when he set me apart, called me, was pleased to reveal to me I did not immediately consult with anyone. So grammatically picking up on this long sentence, Paul's point here is going back to verse 11, that the gospel he has preached is not man's gospel. As he became a Christian, as Jesus made himself known to Paul, Paul did not go to the apostles. Paul did not chat with and spend all of his time, even with the Christian church in Damascus. He goes there, he meets one, Ananias, who heals his blindness. But he doesn't study with any of them. He doesn't hear them out and learn all the ins and outs of the teachings of Jesus up to that point. He doesn't go to Jerusalem to the apostles But instead, he turns a different direction. He goes down into Arabia and then to Damascus. So he leaves Damascus for Arabia. Arabia, that's really hard to say where he went because Arabia refers, if you look at the map of the Middle East and you see the Jordan River and the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea below it, basically anything to the southeast of the Dead Sea there is going to be Arabia, going all the way to the Persian Gulf. It's a huge chunk of land. Anything east of Judah, southeast of Judah, Jerusalem. And we're not told why he went. Did he go for a a time of isolated study? A retreat to ponder what all of this meant? Did he go to hide because he was ashamed of what he had done? Did he go as a missionary? Was he already in Arabia sharing the gospel? We're simply not told. But he goes to Arabia, then he comes back to Damascus, and then, after three years, he'll go to Jerusalem. That's our next paragraph, so let's pick that up. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So three years, Paul is a Christian before he meets Cephas. Cephas, by the way, is the Aramaic name for Peter. Peter means rock in Greek. Cephas means rock in Aramaic. We also know him as Simon. 
He goes up to Jerusalem, although it would be down on a map because Jerusalem is a mountainous place, and so you have to ascend to get to it. And he remains there 15 days with Peter. 15 days. It's not a long time. But in that time, notably, none of the other apostles are present except James. Why? Well, maybe they're already out doing missionary work of their own. We have traditions of records in the church of Mark going to Africa, of Thomas going to India, and so forth. Mark's not even an apostle, I suppose, uh, but nonetheless, right? We have these traditions of where the early Christian leading men went with the gospel. Maybe they're already at it. Paul meets two, Peter and James. And this is not James the greater. This is not James the lesser. So the two that were original disciples of Jesus. This is James, the Lord's brother. That's evidence for the idea that Jesus actually had earthly brothers. We won't get too far sidetracked into that conversation, um, but this is the James and Judas and Simon and Joseph that are referred to in Mark chapter 6, for example. This James will go on to be the head of the church in Jerusalem until he is martyred. I want to say his martyrdom happens in the early 60s, maybe 62 AD. Peter and Paul both in 68 by Nero, the Roman emperor at the time. Nonetheless, this verse, verse 19, is why we would add James's name to the list of apostles in the New Testament. We have the original 12 disciples called apostles, even Judas Iscariot, in the Gospel of Luke. And then in the book of Acts, we see Matthias added to the number to replace Judas. And then we will see Paul and Barnabas, so that brings the number up to 15, and then James here, 16. And that's it. That's your list of apostles via God's word. Note in what I'm writing to you before God, I did not lie. Do not lie. Paul, proclaiming that he speaks the truth. I guess we have a connection there to the end of the Old Testament reading where the woman of Zarephath, widow of Zarephath, recognized that the prophet spoke the truth. And we know, with holding both of these texts to be God's word, that they are true, that the Holy Spirit does not lie. And, writing on his behalf, nor does Paul. After this, after having gone to Jerusalem for his first visit there, Paul goes off to Syria and Cilicia, if you're again looking at the map, if you look at the Mediterranean Sea, both of them border it. Syria is going to be on the, the northeastern side. Well, they both are. I mean, they border each other too. Cilicia is on the north side of the Mediterranean Sea, with Syria being on the east side of it. So together they like form the northeast corner on the sea. They are, I've heard, together a Roman province, 
Antioch serving as the capital, Syrian Antioch, uh, to contrast it with the Antioch that is up in Galatia, in Asia Minor. Verse 22, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So at this point, he has not yet gone on his first missionary journey, which would happen in the 40s. Based on the timeline we've discussed, it doesn't look like he's yet to that point. It doesn't even look like 40 AD is probably hit. We might be in the late 30s at the moment of the text. But Jews are hearing about him. They're hearing that the one who once was trying to destroy them is now preaching Christ. What a fascinating turn of events. It's the stuff of legend, right? As we think of telling stories ourselves and making up stories, this is the kind of turnaround that you could only dream of. But this is it. This is what the Lord has done. The Lord has chosen to do this. And it's worth saying we were all his enemies before we were brought to faith through the gift of the Holy Spirit, either through baptism or the preaching of the word. But Paul, again, with his great zeal, now a tool for Christ, an instrument for good. And so the church glorified God because of Paul. Just as we do, we still hold Paul with quite high regard today. Not all Christians do. Uh, Progressive Christianity throws Paul out the window. They call him all kinds of things like misogynist and, and so forth, and they reject his word. Early church had his heretics that did that too. I think of like Marcion throughout all of Paul's writings. Although he held on to Luke, and Luke learned it all from Paul, so that's intriguing. Anyway, those who hold that the Bible is God's word and not man's word rejoice that the Lord has done so much good through Paul. What I just said, I guess, is the point of the text too, isn't it? That the Bible, that this gospel is God's word. It's not man's word. It's not Paul's word. This is the Spirit's work. And we rejoice, just as we rejoice today, whenever the Spirit works through us to serve and care for our neighbors and to bring the good news of Jesus to them. This now brings us to our gospel text from Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. And just like we saw with the Old Testament reading, beginning with really a phrase that means you have to read what comes before it after this, Now we do again in Luke 7, soon afterward. After what? So we'll have to revisit that. And both of them, again, parallel, dealing with resurrections. So what's going on before Luke 7, 11? Jesus has been in Capernaum, healing a centurion's servant. Capernaum may have been home base for Jesus and the disciples during his time of ministry, It seems to be where Peter lived with his wife and mother-in-law and owned a house there. It is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So now, Jesus is going to leave there, having healed again the centurion, the Gentile, Roman soldier, servant. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, 
and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So, having healed the centurion's servant, Jesus leaves from Capernaum and heads to the southwest. Nain is, seems to be a small village located 20 miles southwest of Capernaum. So it's a little bit southwest even of the Sea of Galilee. I guess at that point it would be like southwest, west, west. It's pretty close, almost level with the bottom of the sea from what I could tell on a map. It's the only time that the town of Nain is mentioned in the whole of Scripture. We use the word a little bit more often because we talk about mom here. We don't usually talk about the boy. Just like with Zarephath and the widow. It's not the son of Zarephath, right? It, it's the widow of Zarephath. And here it's not the, the man of Nain. It's the, the widow of Nain that we, we tend to talk about. It's just how we refer to to the women. So we use the, the phrase Nain a little bit more often, and that's probably more recognizable to us because of the miracle that happens in this text. I mean, if I were to mention some other random city from the Bible that only shows up once, you probably, I mean, I'm not saying you haven't read the Bible, but even as a pastor who goes through the Bible again and again, as I read it, sometimes I see things I often see things that I don't remember, even though I've, I've read it before. It's just like, I don't remember that name. I don't remember that town or that, that thing. But, but for some reason, we remember Nain, even though so many other places in Scripture elude us. And it's because of the miracle. It's because of what happened there in that place that day. There aren't many resurrections in the Bible. A promise of a total resurrection, yes. But you could probably name most of the resurrections that you see in Scripture. I I would think that probably the majority of Christians could name the majority of resurrections. Zarephath and Nain, I think most people probably would come up with. Now, maybe not the other one that Elisha does. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Shunammite. Lazarus would be the first, maybe, that a lot of people would say. But even if you just had those five, you've got Eutychus being raised by Paul, But even getting just the five, I think, gets you more than halfway there. And then you've got, of course, God the Father raising Jesus from the dead, too. 
there aren't a lot of individual cases of resurrections. Now, there is the whole group of people mysterious to us. Uh, Matthew 27's gospel account that he tells us are raised from the dead at the time of Easter. When Jesus rose, that the tombs of many were opened and they, they were raised to life. But again, there is a promise of a greater resurrection. And that's the thing we we focus on so much as Christians because even when it comes to a man like this, whom Jesus raises from the dead, he does die again. Lazarus would die again. The widow's son, the Zarephathian woman's son, would die again. But the resurrection that comes in Christ on the last day... There is no death to follow it for the Christian. There's an everlasting death that follows for those who are raised to judgment because they don't believe. They've rejected the gift that comes in Christ alone. So anyway, Jesus heading to Nain, and with him, not only the disciples, but also a great crowd. That's not uncommon for Jesus in his ministry, for crowds to follow him about everywhere he goes, Again, they've just seen him heal this centurion's servant. So there's growing respect for his miracles. As he drew near to the gate of the town, so remembering cities often surrounded by walls, in this case even a town, and you have to go through that entry point. You have to go through the gate. It's the place of business, politics, where the leading men of the place would gather together to discuss the welfare of the people. But in this case, this day, they are carrying a man out in a funeral procession. They would not have buried the dead inside the town, dead bodies being unclean. Old Testament culture there, they would carry the body outside the town and bury him outside. And once again, we have a widow's son, the widow of Nain. So our parallel with the Old Testament account, the widow of Zarephath, he's died, he's being carried away, mom's in the procession. He was the only son. That also means he was her caretaker, because unlike the first account in the Old Testament, this is not a child, this is a man. He has grown up, he is his mother's provider. She lives with him at this point. And now that's been taken away. Now she is a widow and also, I don't know that we can say childless, but essentially so, right? If she's got daughters who've grown up, they've married, they're now living with their husbands, perhaps one of those households would take her in, but she might have nowhere to go. So this is a great distress for her not only in the sense of losing her son, which would grieve any mother terribly, but also, what's next? How do I survive? Those two tragedies are on her mind. Jesus is about to fix both of them. A considerable crowd from the town was with her. Lots of people gathered together, that shows that she is somebody known in her community. But again, it's a if it's a smaller community, it's described as a town, not a city here, then small town life 
People know each other. So as this woman grieves, they grieve with her. When Jesus saw her, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Compassion means suffer with. Com is a a Latin prefix for with. Passion, Christ's passion is his suffering in Holy Week. From, I believe that one comes more out of the Greek. Anyway, compassion, to suffer with. He suffers with her. We would talk about sympathy in a very similar way, to, to suffer with. And he looks at her and he says, do not weep. How can you say that? Imagine somebody coming up to you at the funeral of a family member and telling you not to cry. We would see that as rude, a terrible thing to say. But there's a reason, there's a purpose he's saying it. He's about to take away the reason for her tears. There's a little bit of a foreshadowing of paradise in that, is there not? Where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more crying or death or pain or suffering. This resurrection foreshadows the better. There is a resurrection to come of all flesh. So don't weep. And what does he do? He comes up and he touches the beer. So for those of you that aren't familiar with this, B-I-E-R, we don't use that word very often in English in America these days. Uh, it's a, a stand of some kind which the men of the town are carrying as they process the man out. So he's laying on some kind of a platform and they're carrying it out of town. That's the beer. And so they, the pallbearers, they're not called pallbearers, just bearers here, those who are carrying the dead body, they remain still. Jesus, interestingly, doesn't touch the man. He touches the beer. But then he speaks to the man. Young man, I say to you, arise. Unfortunately, I have heard that there have been some moments where the faith healer group of people have gone to funerals and spoken in such ways uh, to the tragedy of the, the family present. Jesus is God. right? If he says it, it's going to happen. Jesus can speak things into existence. In fact, he spoke all that is into existence. This creation was spoken into existence by him. And just as he can speak to a demon and cast it out, just tremendous to think about, the demons must listen to Jesus so he can speak to death. So he can speak to the dead person and the dead person listens. You and I can go to the cemetery this afternoon and speak to the dead all we want. It won't do anything. But Jesus speaks to the dead and they hear him. And they must obey him. Which again foreshadows the resurrection on the last day when he will summon us all forth from the tomb, reuniting body and soul again. Again, saw that in the Old Testament text. Death separates body and soul. Resurrection puts them back together. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Luke doesn't bother to tell us what he's saying. 
be neat to hear his first words as he wakes up from death. But we don't get those. You can imagine, just like we said with the Old Testament, what his mother may be feeling at this point, what the man may be feeling at this point, what Jesus may be feeling at this point. The joy that is there. But that's not the emotion Luke focuses on. Instead, verse 16, fear seized them all. Who is this guy? What did he just do? Even if you go with an early age of the earth, which I do, I hold to the earth being you know, around 6,500 years old. There have been billions of people over those six or seven millennia. And only a handful of them have been raised from the dead. This is rarer than rare. This isn't an everyday occurrence. This isn't an every generation occurrence. Like, you know, sports teams and stuff, we have that every generational prospect. No. This is something that you just don't expect because it has happened so few times in history. And they just saw it. There is nothing more powerful that they could have witnessed. Again, in their view here, right? They are terrified. And rightly so. This is the omnipotent God. He is all-powerful. But, not only is fear present, they also give glory to God. They recognize that even though he's all-powerful, what he has just done is tremendously good. The one who has great power can wield that power for evil or he can wield it for good. And when it's good, thanks be to God. And that's exactly what they do. They give thanks to God for what they've seen. They give credit to, glory to God. How so? By saying a great prophet has arisen among us or, and God has visited his people. Both of those statements give glory to God because God has sent this person. God has done the work. Let's look at both phrases. A great prophet has arisen among us. Up to this point in the history of the world, which is 4,000 some years, the resurrection of the dead's only happened three times. We had the first one from Elijah in 1 Kings 17. Elisha will raise the son of the Shunammite woman. And then in death, Elisha will raise another. Somebody's thrown into his grave. The dead body touches Elisha's bones and the man's raised back to life. Three. That's it. It's hard to chronologicalize the, the timeline of the New Testament Gospels all the time. So Jesus does a few But this is, this is a first to them. Elijah and Elisha have done this. So if Jesus has done it, he just joined that class. 
Elijah is considered by the Jewish people to be the great prophet of the Old Testament. Which is interesting when I stop and think about that, because Elisha's request was that he would have a double portion of Elijah's spirit, and he gets it. And again, Elijah raised one from the dead, Elisha raised two from the dead, but anyway. They believe God has sent them a great prophet. And they glorify God because of it. It's good, and it's not not true. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills all of those offices for us. A prophet is one who speaks God's word to his people. And that's what Jesus came to do. Secondly, God has visited his people. They might be willing to say that they have believed God to be absent from them since Malachi. Now, that would not actually be true. God has not been absent. He has continued to be with them and among them and serving them and saving them, caring for them, but they have not heard from God in such a way in generations. Malachi writes in around 430 BC, I believe, and then you have silence. until the New Testament. So it's a big gap. And what they see here, they believe this is God visiting them. And in a way, they're certainly right. They don't recognize it, perhaps, that Jesus is God in the flesh. But that's what they see. That's what they have. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, has taken on flesh. John 1, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Good stuff. So this report about him, that he's a great prophet, that God is with him, God has visited the people, this report about him spread through all of Judea, Judea being the old southern kingdom of Judah, but now a Roman province, and also then into the surrounding country. So all the areas around Judea, so Samaria to the north, um, the small towns, the villages where people live, and so forth. The word of Jesus continues to spread that he can do even this incredible thing. And again, as Christians, we just look at this as a foreshadowing of what is to come. The promise, I shouldn't say just, it's a fantastic miracle, but it is a foreshadowing of the resurrection day when Christ will keep his promise and raise each of us reuniting body and soul together again unto life everlasting. Amen.